This is an ABC podcast. Countrywide on ABC Radio. I'm absolutely calling on the Deputy Prime Minister to pay attention to his own report. Growers work from sun up to sun down, sir. Countrywide. We need to speak to these growers one o'clock in the morning. And to actually act on behalf of the farmers. They're going to get it from the Yanks or the French or whoever. So let's get our foot in the door and let's be the first. Countrywide. The politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. Hello, hello. Michelle Stanley along with you for Countrywide. Good to have your company. When you go clothes shopping, what drives your purchase? Is it fashion trends, price, sustainability? What about ethical reasons like fair trade or the farming practices like mulesing? There has been a huge push from retailers to move away from mulesed wool, but how fast is industry keeping up? We weren't sure when to transition i suppose um, and how we can see that it that even if we wanted to keep musing which we don't that it would only be a matter of time before before we can't the very first carbon credits under the new 2021 methodology have been awarded quite a few years in the making i guess it's not the reason which we went into the regenerative management but it's it's a good added income stream and the property market across Australia has been a little all over the place recently. This half hour, you'll hear how the value of farmland has been washing up of late. We've seen some of the best conditions on average across the country over the last three years, supported by record production and the like. That and plenty more coming up on Countrywide. Stick around. First, though, to Western Australia, where new laws to protect Aboriginal cultural heritage like sacred sites and burial grounds have been introduced this weekend. The introduction of the new Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Act has caused widespread confusion and concern, both for Aboriginal knowledge holders and the wide range of people and businesses who may be impacted by it. Lucinda Joyce reports. In 2020, global mining company Rio Tinto made headlines across the country when it destroyed two 46,000-year-old rock shelters that were important to the PKKP people in the Pilbara. Despite the cultural significance of Jukun Gorge, the blasts weren't illegal. Ben Wyatt was WA's Minister for Aboriginal Affairs at the time. Uh, we started this in 2017, some three years before Jukun Gorge. What Jukun Gorge did highlight, though, is that you've actually got to involve Aboriginal people in the management of heritage, and that's what this does do. It does now require, in the law, for somebody who's impacting a site to actually speak to the relevant Aboriginal body. The destruction of Jukun Gorge expedited the new Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Act that will come into effect this weekend. It's a complicated piece of legislation to cover the whole of Western Australia. Lots of land uses and lots of Aboriginal cultural heritage, like burial grounds, rock art and middens, which are collections of shells left from where Aboriginal people cooked and ate in the past. The impact of the Act will vary from place to place and across different activities. And large sections of the community, like Gascoigne pastoralist Harry McKeough, are simply confused. I don't really know enough. We've been given some guidelines, but it, it's just there's just a, just a complete lack of information. And, and like everyone else, we're, we're trying, trying to get a bit of you know, earthworks and land care work done before the end of the month. Almost 30,000 people with similar concerns to Harry have signed a petition calling for the Act to be delayed by at least six months. Pastoralists and Graziers Association President Tony Seabrook is the principal petitioner. 
this will impose an unbelievable level of regulation and cost and, and slow the process of what we do down by easily up to a year in many cases. It doesn't recognise what our industry is about and what we do. It just imposes a whole lot of regulation that is largely unnecessary. Education workshops held across the state have been overcapacity with hundreds of primary producers, prospectors and people who conduct earthworks as part of their business attending meetings to find out how the Act will affect them. Questions have been raised about the accuracy of maps of identified heritage, fees to be paid for heritage services and concern that the Department of Planning, Lands and Heritage and local Aboriginal cultural heritage services are not yet ready to take applications. People are also really worried about penalties for breaking the laws, including $1 to $10 million fines for individuals and corporations who cause serious harm to Aboriginal cultural heritage. But Minister for Aboriginal Affairs Tony Booty says objections to the Act amount to scaremongering. There is so much misinformation going on here. In many respects, the current system that people work under is more onerous than what the new system will be. So there is a lot of disinformation, misinformation and, may I say, scaremongering, which is really unfortunate. The whole new system is geared to ensure that Aboriginal cultural heritage is protected, which I'm told everyone, including Tony's organisation, agrees should be the case. And we want to do it in a manner that provides greater certainty and consistency many of the members that he represents will not be affected by this new act. And it's not that cultural heritage is not protected under the current legislation. It is protected under the current legislation. Even native title groups who hold the cultural knowledge and will be heavily involved in implementing the new laws have called for more time. Newcomer man Wayne Bergman is a director of the board of two native title groups in the West Kimberley. Look, there are no doubt there are improvements in the act, but ultimately... We all got to live with each other and the heavy handedness of the state in pushing this through has been disappointment. We've reached out with industry in the early days prior to the draft act being made public and talked to people about reaching a compromise in which we all live with. So the drama is the government and bureaucrats rushing to push this through has put everyone off balance because even Aboriginal groups who participate in this area are meant to be organised to implement the regulations after only seeing it in three days, uh, three days ago. So I, I think it's a disaster and a time bomb waiting to go off. With pressure mounting, the WA state government said it will form an implementation group made up of relevant people to address any problems that come up and no prosecutions will be made under the Act for at least six months. The farming sector says it's a win. The opposition called it a backflip. But WA Premier Peter Cook says this was always part of the plan. Ever since I've been in the role as Premier, I've said that I wanted to take a a practical, common-sense and collaborative partnership approach to the implementation of these laws. We want to continue to work with the industry and with community groups and with the Aboriginal community to make sure that these laws are in place in a way which provides people with certainty, with clear instructions under their, in terms of their obligations, but most importantly of all, that we can implement them in an educative way and really just make sure we get on with the task of protecting Aboriginal cultural heritage. 
Western Australian Premier Roger Cook ending that report from Lucinda Joyce about WA's new Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Act. That act has come into place this weekend. Cattle producers along the Queensland Northern Territory border say they're being forced to change their mustering plans as cases of Gigi poisoning increase. Andrea Speed from Brigadoon Cattle Company says cattle on their Northern Territory and Northwest Queensland properties have died in recent weeks because of a tree that can prove toxic at times. Andrea Speed says there's not a lot known about the toxicity of this tree. So both those places are in the Georgina watershed and so we get uh, Gigi poisoning. So at certain times of year, the Gigi trees, um, yeah, basically become poisonous and cattle literally just drop dead. Uh, it doesn't happen all the time. Generally, it starts in summer and would sort of turn off when the first good rain comes. But this year, for some unbeknown reason, it's just started about a fortnight ago, which is really odd given that we've had such a good season and there's so much grass. And you said it's, it's something that people don't really know a great deal about. It's, it's a bit of a mystery, the, the Gigi poison, and when it happens, why it happens. So the fact that it's starting now, which doesn't usually happen, I guess, can we, can we learn anything from that? Does that tell us anything? Oh, look, no. Every time you think you've got Gigi poison figured out, it will do something completely different just to throw you off. So, I mean, I guess it affects a lot of country, um, acres-wise, and quite a few cattle, but there's probably only, you know, a dozen or 20 properties that it affects. But obviously those properties account for a lot of the breeding herd um, in that part of the world. So... Yeah, it's, um, I know that there has been a bit of research done to it, but um, there's a big push at the moment to get a bit of funding to try and finish and complete that research because it does affect, um, yeah, a lot of cattle. And sometimes the losses, you know, you might say 10% of your herd. It, yeah, when it's bad, it's pretty devastating. I mean, I know years ago when we were up north at Tobermory, we flew back along a mob and you could just see them dropped dead on the road. You know, it was like... Um, yeah, a trail of breadcrumbs, just not Gosh. as nice. <laughs> Andrea Speed from the Brigadoon Cattle Company based in Queensland and the Northern Territory. She was speaking with Madeline McCosker. Commodity prices have been coming off the boil this year, especially livestock prices, but it hasn't affected property values. They've continued to soar. ABES has launched a new farmland price index, which shows Australia's broadacre farm values have risen 18% in the last year to average $4,689 per hectare. ABES Executive Director Jared Grenville says farm prices, especially over the last three years, have been running red hot. So there are a few factors which we think are, are contributing to this increase. The first is you know, good seasonal conditions, and we've seen some of the best conditions on average across the country over the last three years, supported by record production and the like. The other aspect is record prices, or, or at least 30-year high prices, and we've seen some record prices for particular crops like canola and so forth um, in that period. Um, and the last thing has been, up until recently, We've been in a fairly low interest rate environment, which has improved debt affordability. And when we look at farmer behaviour from, from our other farm survey work, we see that debt's increased on farms and that a lot of that debt's been in response to buying land purchases. So there's an, there was an increased optimism, I think, around in the sector and an opportunity with higher incomes to start to leverage the purchases of more land. And so those factors have likely 
contributed to what we've seen in these numbers and farmland prices. Certainly things have been good over the last three years, but if we just take a look at the last six to 12 months, commodity prices have been coming off the boil, especially livestock prices, and yet that doesn't seem to have affected property values. Now, why do you think that is? I think there's still a fair degree of long-term optimism in the sector. So while prices have come off, and as you say, livestock prices in particular, as I guess the heat's gone out of that restocking demand that we saw coming out of the back of those really poor conditions when we had those droughts, um, there is a long-term optimism about demand for agricultural products, particularly from Australia. And so when we look you know, at our closest neighbours in Southeast Asia, there's still a long-term expectation that they will grow you know, quite considerably and we're increasing our exports to Southeast Asia. We've got increased rates of urbanisation, uh, which generally leads to shifts in diets that you know, promote the kind of products that we produce. So I think those factors in the long-term still lead to um, you know, a, a degree of optimism. The other thing is that farm cash balance sheets are still pretty good despite you know, these falls and so forth. So there's most probably a lingering effect of the last few years in terms of where farms are, are thinking in terms of their investment strategy and, and the like. So that's that's likely to play out. And then with falling prices and also interest rates, we might start to see a moderation in some of that behaviour of, you know, expansion to about you know, risk management and, and managing what might be the, the kind of dry conditions coming on the road. As a reasonably young person who would love to own a farm one day, I just want to know when it, it, it'll stop or it just slow down. Or does a $10 million property today, is it really going to cost more than $100 million to buy it in the year 2050? What do you think? Oh, it's a good question. And it's you know it's why I guess starting to produce these series to be able to answer those questions is going to be really important. So you know, we've got some ideas of, you know, in a way, what, what's driven some of the latest changes, but what's going to be really important is trying to unpack these long-term drivers and see what we can explain. ABARES Executive Director Jared Greenville speaking to Matt Brand. You can find this new farmland price index via the ABARES website. What's on your dinner plate? Countrywide, the politics of food and farming. Good, you can join me. Michelle Stanley's my name. Australia's first soil carbon credits have been granted under the new 2021 methodology. Two farming families have been awarded over 150,000 Australian carbon credit units, or ACUs, for over 18,000 hectares of land. The scheme works by giving a carbon credit for every tonne of greenhouse gases avoided or stored by registered projects. Alice Marshall has this story. On their cattle property north of Gundawindi in southern Queensland, Tom and Antoinette Archer have been working to restore their ground cover and a healthy range of native plant species for the past two decades. Now, they're being rewarded for this work in the form of soil carbon credits. I mean, we went into this kind of management for increased production and to look after our country better, and along came carbon eventually as a potential added income stream. That's the way we look at it. And, you know, there'll hopefully be more in the biodiversity world and and other, potentially other income streams. But it's, I guess it's not the reason we we went into the regenerative management, but it's it's a good added income stream. Between the archers and the lorries, who also produce cattle west of Rockhampton, 
151,312 Australian carbon credit units have been granted by the Clean Energy Regulator in the first issuance of soil carbon credits en masse and under the new 2021 methodology. It's not without cost, though. There's a cost in changing your production system back in the beginning, but since it's since carbon's come on the scene, there, there's considerable cost in measurement. Um, we've done two measurements, and also there's, um, there's a cost in the auditing process, which has been quite um, rigorous, I would say. And that's not considering the cost of engaging CarbonLink to help facilitate the process. Here's CarbonLink Director Andrew Gatenby. If you think about a 3,000 hectare property, for example, it might cost two sample rounds, might cost, you know, it could be two to $300,000 depending on the circumstances, what it is. But I think, and people get hung up on that and I understand because it's a five-year spend. You've got to spend some money today. You've got to spend some money in five years' time. But the returns per hectare that we've we've calculated, every kilo of beef they've produced, they've sequestered pretty close to 50, almost 50 kilos of CO2 equivalent, 49. Their return out of the carbon product is two to three times more per hectare than is out of their beef enterprise. Carbon credits are currently trading relatively well at around $35 an ACU, but it won't work for every farmer. Yeah, so look, soil carbon, I mean, we can test soils anywhere. Else, but I think the reality is that soil carbon um, tends to sort of work in zones where there's good clay soils or good clay content soils, rainfall, and this is just a typical, you know, not everything, there's always different circumstances, but typically 500 mils of rainfall or better. And, and sort of as you go into more temperate environments, the sort of the sequestration rates tend to improve. When you're talking about farmers approaching you, I guess to work as a bit of a middleman between the producer and then eventually the emissions reduction fund, what boxes have they got to have checked before they can work with you? Well, the things that we want to know is, um, and from our end, everyone's, every, there's other people that do this in the, in the space, but from our perspective, we want a reasonable amount of scale. So ideally we'd like a 1,000 hectares or better, which is a starting point. And, and then those sort of criteria with rainfall, clay content and so forth, they're all important. But I think the other thing we need to have is that the landholder needs to be ready to make this commitment because it's a 25-year story. You know, you, you sign up for the Clean Energy Regulator, you do a carbon product, it's a 25-year agreement with the Clean Energy Regulator. So... It's a generational commitment. So you've got to have your head around that. You've got to have your head around that there's going to be some practice change or management practices that need to be changed. And then there's all the other functional things like, you know, from our point of view, who owns the property and making sure there's clear title from banks or when I say clear title, that there are other people that may have interest in that property, banks or other agencies like that, can give you um, consent to under, under to operate a project on the farm. With this leasehold, for example, the state government has to sign off. And when you say that a farmer or producer needs to show that changes, they're willing to make changes, you mean they're willing to sort of document a regenerative shift in there? Well, not just document, they've got to actually do it, you know. So for some people that may be too hard or too much for a leap of faith or too much work. Like we we handle most of the paperwork and all the administration and the documentation for the regulation and the project, that type of thing, and we can help them with implementation. But ultimately the farmer has to move from a a set stocking to a rotation. They've got to invest in improved pastures. They've got to invest in fencing and water. Or they might want to change their cropping regime from a high-intensity or high-input agriculture into another form of agriculture. So you put a 
get your head around how that's going to work and what's involved and the different things that need to be done. Andrew Gattenby is a director with Carbon Link, ending that report by Alice Marshall, with additional reporting by Ali Felton-Taylor. Market demand for non-mules wool is growing, but industry transition has been slow. Mulesing is a practice used to protect sheep from fly strike, but animal welfare groups say it's cruel and should be stopped. Merino wool declared as non-mules has increased by just half a percent in the last year. Roughly 52% of producers still mules their flocks. But as Annie Brown reports, some producers are making the transition. In southern New South Wales, how long farmer Ian Trevethan has 4,000 merino ewes running around in his paddocks. By the end of this year, he hopes any new lambs born won't need mulesing. Um, so last year we bought some ewes, non-mules ewes, so that where we bought them, they'd cease mulesing a fair while ago. So we're pretty confident that at least those ewes, the offspring from them should be pretty good. We're buying rams recently, buying rams and placing more emphasis on that low breech wrinkle. But the combination of having um, plainer rams and, and a number of ewes that we've bought in, we're hoping that we'll get a, a reasonable number of ewe offspring out of them to you know, to set ourselves up for a, you know, a mules-free flock moving forward. Mulesing refers to a procedure where flaps of skin are removed from a lamb's breech and tail. After the area is healed, the skin should have no folds or wrinkles and is less likely to attract blowflies and reduce the risk of diseases like fly strike. In recent years, animal welfare groups such as the RSPCA have called for an end to the practice and a stop to breeding sheep which are susceptible to fly strike. We weren't sure when to transition I suppose um, and how I think the debate of whether or not mulesing is going to be an option down the track is over like we can see that it that even if we wanted to keep mulesing which we don't that it would only be a matter of time before before we can't we don't don't look forward to mulesing um, it's not it's not pleasant no one no one enjoys it and you can absolutely see why people that have had no exposure to the practice when they see it for the first time are actually quite shocked. Um, so yeah, no, we are looking forward to having animals that we no longer have to mules. In 2019, the Victorian government made it mandatory for pain relief to be used while mulesing. And in that same year, retailers such as Kmart, Target, Country Road and Meyer announced they would be moving away from using mules wool in their products. But despite the market demand and public backlash, the change has been slow. According to Australian Wool Innovation, producers who mules their lambs has dropped by only 18% in four years. Currently, there's no official target date for the industry to phase out mulesing. However, Mr Trevethan believes farmers need time to get it right. Uh, I also believe that it's not something that you can do overnight. So I think, I think we've got the balance pretty right from a legislation point of view um, because if it were carpet were ripped away from underneath us, I guess, outcomes of that from an animal welfare point of view, would be um, disastrous. So, although it has to, although we have to transition, I think I think we're doing the right thing by giving people time to get their because I believe that the the only well not the only way, but the best way to to go down a non mules down the non mules path is um, is to is through genetic selection. Fox and Lily Rural Area Manager and Wool Broker Jenny Turner says the volumes of non mules wool has certainly changed in the past decade. The demand for non-mules wool really comes from 
you know, non-Chinese buyers. It's America and Europe, pretty much. Yeah, given China takes anywhere between, you know, 75 to 85% of the Australian wool clip over the years, um, yes, it's still absolutely that smaller part of the market. Um, but I guess if we've got, you know, roughly 20% of the market looking for roughly 20% of our clip, well, then, you know, that's that's where you get a premium. Do you see that growing in the future? Yes, uh, all all accounts, um, all reports that come um, from the traders in our export department, they would concur that, you know, right now there's not not a great deal of demand and not a great deal of business happening, but that is due to the macroeconomic situation and the demand really still is there for that non-mulesed or responsible wool standard wool, and when they do return to buying, that is what they're looking for. I think the attitude amongst buyers and brokers is that it's very pragmatic they're on the the buyers are on the forefront of you know taking the orders from mills and taking the orders from the fabric makers so it's quite clear to them that there's a demand for non-mulesed wool you know the exporters deal with overseas clients all the time so yeah it is it is very clear to them that breach modification in any version of it is is not their preference at all Wool broker Jenny Turner ending that report by Annie Brown. And before you head off today, stray dogs aren't exactly an unusual sight in rural Australia. What is unusual, though, is when they travel 3,000 kilometres with some unlikely air miles involved too. This is the story of Elvis, a rock star dog from Halls Creek in Western Australia's East Kimberley who made the mammoth journey to get to his new home in Perth. Alice Marshall caught up with those involved in his travels. Meet Elvis. Before he was given this iconic name, Elvis was one of many stray dogs roaming the streets of Halls Creek, a remote Kimberley town on the edge of the Great Sandy Desert. That's until he met Rachel Dancy, a social worker in town. I was working in the office, actually, um, doing some work on a Saturday, and me and a colleague were doing some work, and Elvis uh, just rocked up to the office. And he was immediately really friendly, um, looked like he hadn't had a feed in a while, and you know, looked not in great nick. Um, so we just popped to the local shop, got him some food, um, that kind of escalated and we got him a dog bed and a lead and a collar um, and we agreed to kind of look after him just for the weekend until we could get in touch with the ranger hoping that she'd be able to scan him and find out if he had an actual owner but he pretty much spent the day at our office curled up on his dog bed and waiting for us to finish work basically very well behaved like he's a little legend Hence the name Elvis, he's a bit of a rock star. With the prevalence of stray dogs across the Kimberley, Rachel struggled to find a home for Elvis locally. But she did know a family in Perth that were keen to take him in. The only problem was the nearly 3,000 kilometre distance between Halls Creek and Perth. After speaking to Rachel, Taylor Portis from the Kimberley Vet Centre wanted to help. So she put out a post on the organisation's Facebook page. So I put this picture up of Elvis on the community Facebook board for Kananara um, and we've got this overwhelming response of people wanting to help out and get him down to Perth. We had people from Broome, Halls Creek, Port Hedland, Karatha all offering their houses as stopover points for him. We had people offering to do just little legs of the journey and then eventually we got a message from the Air Force, um, to say that they may have a spot on their plane. Ryan, a WA police pilot, was scrolling through social media in his spare time when he chanced upon Elvis's Facebook post. I saw Elvis was posted on Facebook when I was just uh, 
trawling through there in some spare time and uh, realised uh, he needed to get from uh, Kalanara down to Perth to his new family and I realised we had one of our aeroplanes up there that was coming through that area anyway. Uh, so I liaised with the pilot up there and saw if he had some room in the plane to bring him down and then we spoke to our uh, commanders here to get approvals and uh, yeah we picked him up in Kalanara, flew him to Halls Creek uh, down and down to uh, Karatha. Uh, where he overnighted with one of our pilots up there and uh, spent some time with his family where they all fell in love with him. Uh, then one of our other pilots, he flew up from Perth and flew him down to Perth. From all accounts, Elvis was a star traveller. Apparently he was the uh, perfect, uh, perfect passenger for the guys coming down, slept most of the way. Um, and very happy uh, to meet everybody. It's not the first time uh, we've transported uh, dogs. Uh, we transport our police canine uh, around the state quite often. Um, however, they're not as calm a demeanor as Elvis was. After a long and rather unusual journey, Elvis and his new owners were united. Thanks to Alice Marshall for that story. And that is it for me for Countrywide. I'm Michelle Stanley. I'll catch you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.